Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, a new Lord's Day that we can meet together and worship you today, look into your word and seek to uh, hear the message that you have for us in this day. We thank you for this this time, this, this day during the week. We can set aside the other uh, activities that we're involved in and, and really use this as a time of, of spiritual refreshment, fellowship. And we do pray that you would be with us um, as we meet together today, that you would guide us and direct us and that uh, all that we do and say would be f- for your glory. And as we consider some of the history of your people, uh, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people and what happened in the past as you were working out your divine uh, providential plan for our salvation, we pray that you would give us good understanding and insights and, and help us to apply the truths that we learn in the areas that uh, you would have us to do that, to, to make us uh, better servants of you and to, and to give us those, the knowledge and the wisdom and the skill to glorify you in our lives. So all these things we commit to you now, asking for your help, and we pray that you would receive the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, today's uh, lesson is, is pretty much of a history lesson. Okay? Um, last week, as we were considering the prophet Jeremiah, we were looking, looking at that point in time where, where uh, the nation of Judah was um, eventually going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And so, uh, in a way, some of this is going to be a little bit of review. Um, maybe add some details or some perspective, but it's somewhat of review. It's it's the the section in the uh, in the series of lessons about the exile, really more leading up to the exile. There's not a whole lot of information um, about what happened during the exile in the scriptures, although there are some things that we will comment on. But uh, really, we're just going to review and look at look at how um, how the nation. Uh, of Judah, well, first, uh, the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, were taken into exile back um, uh, before the, 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 the time of Christ. I'm going to start by reading a verse from Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. The Word of God says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Pretty strong words here from from, uh, the writer of Second Chronicles, and uh, who wrote Second Chronicles? Well, it's debatable. Probably, at least some of it was written by Jeremiah, most likely. Um, but uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to be comparing some some verses from Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Those are those historical books that that uh, really trace um, the events that we're looking at at this time. So Second. 
It's second, first and second Kings, the authors of those probably, the author was probably Ezra. Although, again, with, with all these kinds of things, when the authors aren't specifically stated in Scripture, then theologians like to debate. Theologians like to debate. So, and that's one of the things they like to debate about is who, who the authors actually were. But probably it was Ezra who wrote, uh, who wrote first and second uh, Kings. And then it's considered at least Second Chronicles was probably written by Jeremiah, at least parts of it. Okay? But these are the, the, the biblical writers who wrote down these events, really the historical events of what took place during this time, so that we can both see the hand of God uh, at work in the nation and uh, also for our edification, um, uh, so that we might learn some, some important lessons about ourselves. And I think when it comes to, comes to studying this portion of Scripture in these times, you know, there, there is the purely academic pursuit of that, and that's just to know what happened. And I find that fascinating, so I enjoy that. But then there's also that aspect of, of it, it was recorded and inscripturated for us. So, um, so there's something there that, that, that appeals to more than just our intellect, but it appeals to our hearts as well. There are spiritual lessons for us to gain from understanding the events that took place and God's commentary on those events. And so that's what we want to try to, try to think about. And um, I will just share some of the, some of the, the insights that I uh, think that I have. I think I have insights. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and, and, of course, you certainly do the same. But this, this passage that I just read in Second Chronicles makes a, a profound statement. It shows us, first of all, the compassion of God. And his, his, his interest, his desire for, um, uh, for his people and their worship place, which I think is significant. I mean, the temple is a major, major place in all of this that's taking place at this time. That really was the place where the people recognized the presence of God. That was the place where the people would gather together to identify with Yahweh. With, uh, with Jehovah God. And, uh, and, and so, so in terms of this theocracy of, of Judah and, uh, and, and, and Israel before they divided, um, their religious perspective was profoundly significant. And so when, the, when, when God um, judged the people the mark of his judgment was, was his judgment on the temple. When the temple was destroyed, that was the, the culminating evidence that God, you know, because of their wickedness, he says there was no remedy for what they were doing. So they turned their back on God, is what they did. And out of his patience and, and, and compassion for them. There, were, there was ongoing attempts at restoration, um, as we will see, and yet the people were, we know, they were stiff-necked and, and hard, and uh, probably in many ways a lot like us. Um, we, uh, we don't have a theocracy in our country, and so therefore we don't see a a church building as the symbol of our nation's 
strength or character. And yet, we all know the history of our country and, and the foundations of, of our, our nation and the fact that uh, God was obviously at work in the founding of this country and, and, our, and our forefathers, our founding fathers, were, were living out of and creating a, a nation out of a biblical worldview. And, um, and so America has, throughout history, been considered to be a Christian nation. Those of us who are Christians don't call it that anymore. Um, we see our Christian heritage, but we don't necessarily call it a Christian nation. And it really never was intended to be. It was always a secular nation. From its inception, it was intended to be secular. But the foundations were surely based upon biblical principles and so forth. And so there's a sense in which, not, not, uh, not directly or specifically, but there's a sense in which we can certainly see some implications of how God dealt with the nation here and some of the, the principles of the character of God and how he deals with people. Okay, um, that we can apply to ourselves as well. And, and many, many leaders have done that. Uh, one of the great laments is that our country seems to consistently be, be moving further and further away from our biblical roots and our biblical heritage. So, but they kept mocking the messengers of God. We see that a lot. And despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. And... Uh, Finally, the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Well, we as his people um, need to be careful that we discipline our own thinking so that we're not sloppy in the way that we worship and the way that we think and the way that we respond to the word of God. For there are cultural, there are dire cultural consequences of that sort of thing as well as breaking fellowship with our Father personally, individually. Okay. So let's consider then this, uh, these times leading up to the exile. The exile really was the greatest crisis for the people of God during the Old Testament period. This is when it all fell apart. And leading up to this, we, we, see, um, we, we see the pre-exilic era where, where God was building his nation we see the the highs and the lows of all that taking place with the judges and then and then uh, the people wanted a king, and so God gave them a king and we saw what happened with with Saul and his kingdom and and then David, uh, the man after god 's own heart and his his godly kingdom, and then after David Solomon, and then the division of the nation into the to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of uh, Judah, and, and then, uh, you know, as we look at that with, with, through the eyes of, of history, we see how the nation just continually began to pull itself further and further away from their heritage and their roots. And so the northern kingdom, as we've already looked at, was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., the Assyrians. Now, I just brought some visual aids. I hope those of you in the back can see. But being a teacher, I just couldn't resist bringing my, uh, my maps. Just to give you a little perspective of 
well, I'll do my best to move back and forth. A little perspective. The northern kingdom here, here's the Mediterranean Sea where Israel is located. The northern kingdom of Israel is here. The capital of uh, Israel was Samaria, which is located right here. Okay, And then when the division, the southern kingdom of Judah was along here. And of course, Ju- Jerusalem was their capital and Jerusalem was was up in here. So so that was the divided kingdom. The, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC and it was no more and it never would be again. Okay? Now in the the big picture of of the Old Testament world then, just to get a perspective. It, it is significant actually. We know the Mediterranean Sea and we know the where where Israel's located even today, that's a very volatile area of the world. And, uh, and, and we watch events over there with, with uh, great interest because, because major world events grow out of that. But of course, Israel was, the land of Canaan here, Israel's right along this area here. To the north, this is in the Old Testament times, to the north is Syria, and then Assyria over here. Babylon is down in this area. Media is up here. And then below them is Persia. Persia, of course, is modern-day Iran. And Babylon is Iraq. Babylon and Assyria are Iraq, modern-day. Of course, down to the south now, the Sinai Peninsula is right here. And Egypt, uh, which was a, a major, major world power. And these were the major world powers. Israel, Canaan, was just a little, a little spot there. It always was. Uh, never very, very large area, so there weren't many, many people there, but a hu- very, very important piece of land. We'll talk a little bit about why that was so significant um, in the events of the world at that time. But so these are where the, the, the major nation, world powers are, and they were constantly battling against each other for dominion. And, uh, you know, in that time period, and, and there was a sense when, where Israel was kind of like, a, I should say Judah, because of the divided king, was like a ping pong ball, just being bounced back and forth. They were, they were fighting for survival. They weren't fighting for world dominion. They were just fighting for survival, kind of like now, <laughs> in a very real sense. Okay, so uh, um, then, of course, we know, we talked about last week a little bit, that the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., after the siege of Jerusalem, and that's when Jerusalem fell in 586. So that time period between 722 and 586... Um, which is not quite 200 years, a 200-year time period. That was a very busy and volatile time in world history. There was a lot going on during that time among those nations that were fighting. Palestine was of enormous geopolitical significance in the ancient world. Let me just show you why this was such a significant area. Here we have... In, in, if you can picture the, the whole, the, all the region, all around that, in, in the world today, here we have this strip of land that is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert. There's nothing going on over here. 
Okay, that's a big desert, and it's pretty hostile. And so there wasn't much going on over there. But, but geographically, this whole area here is called the Fertile Crescent. It's a very fertile area. There's, a lot, uh, there's always been a, a lot of agriculture uh, in, in this particular area and, and, and minerals. It's a, it's a wealthy area. And so the nations were constantly battling over the, the, the control of, of this area. Whoever had the control of the Fertile Crescent area really was going to be a very, very powerful nation um, uh, and, and the kings of those nations were going to be the wealthiest and most powerful in the world. So, yes, sir. Well, would you say that that zone there would not be the desert? Uh, is the funnel between the north and south? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, yeah, that's, that's exactly the point. It, that's exactly the point. Yeah, good insight. And appreciate you making that comment there because that's exactly what we have. If you'll notice in, in the world, we have up here Europe. Europe is up in this area right up here. And on this side is Asia. Down here is Africa. And so what you have is this little strip of land. They weren't flying around in those days because the airplanes hadn't been invented yet. So the only way to, to really kind of get in, you know, the trade routes that went through these areas, the wealth from down in here, and very often the sea, the seagoing uh, vessels would, would need to travel through this area as well. Okay, if they would come into Africa and bring their, their goods up through there, or from over here in India, and they would come and bring them down into Egypt. This little area, everything traveled through there. And so it was very, very important to control that land politically for the people. Now, it's still kind of like that today as well. That's a, that's a rich, fertile, uh, wealthy, potentially wealthy area. Okay, so, so it's still a very, very significant piece of land. The other thing that's interesting to the here is, is um, we know the, the geography here. This is the, the, uh, the Jordan River, the River Jordan that goes through here. We have the Sea of Galilee right up here, and we have the, uh, the Dead Sea along here. It goes down to the Red Sea. Actually, this is a huge fault is what that is, Ge- uh, Geographically, there's a large fault there. This fault line goes all the way down into Africa. It extends all the way down past the equator, down through uh, uh, Kenya, and uh, goes over. There, there are branches of it that go over into Uganda. It's called the Rift Valley in, in Africa. Okay? And so it's a major, major fault that extends all the way up here into, into Israel, today, and it's there today. Theoretically, not just speculating, I'm not, I'm not going to make any prophecies, but theoretically, if you, we who live in California can, can recognize the beauty of the fault line is earthquakes. That's what we're always thinking in terms of. And theoretically, that could be a catastrophic place if a major earthquake took place along that fault line there. Just, just an observation. I don't get into prophecy, so I'm not, you know, I don't know, but I just think, wow, what a significant. You got a comment? Okay. Yeah, so, you know, just, just something to speculate. That's all it is, is just speculation. But, but anyway, so you can see that this is a significant area, historically, and even to this, to this day. So, um, yeah, 
So keep in mind then, this land, you know, bringing together, it's a land bridge that brings together the three continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. Um, Israel and Judah were caught in the middle of the great campaigns among those larger nations. They were battling each other, and they, and, and they were battling, uh, they often were battling in the land that belonged to Israel and Judah for their, so, so there, were, there were oftentimes when the, the, the Old Testament people had all of these things going on in their land and it had nothing to do with them, other than they lived in a very, very significant area. When the collapse, with the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel, what happened? I guess I should have said this first, but, but what happened then very often is that the nations here would make alliances with the major kingdoms around them in order to protect them. Okay, that's what they're typical. So the kings would negotiate with the other kings around, and then Judah uh, down, down here would make alliance with Syria. They, they, they used... They used Syria as kind of a, 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 a protection against um, Assyria and Babylon. But they also had Israel in there serving as kind of a buffer. So, so uh, the, the people of Judah um, felt very secure, so they would make an alliance with Syria, and they often made alliances with, with Egypt. And Egypt really considered this their land. Judah was their country. The Egyptians, you know, just assumed that. The, the, uh, the, the people of Judah didn't necessarily assume that, but the Egyptians did. And frankly, the Egyptians were right because they pretty much had their way around here, uh, around these, these kings. But when Israel fell in 722, the buffer was gone between them and Syria, and now it was a much more significant alliance that they had with Syria, and it didn't necessarily turn out to be a a good thing for them. Well, as we know throughout history then, uh, the northern kingdom, or excuse me, when the northern kingdom um, fell also, the Syrians fell to Assyria. And so the Syrians were conquered by Assyria, Judah was left without an ally. Israel was gone. That was their buffer. Syria was conquered. And now the Assyrians from the, the east were looming just to the north. The Assyrians were not nice guys. They were, they were pretty brutal. And Sennacherib, their, their king, began to raid the towns in Judah and began to lay siege against Jerusalem as early as 705 B.C. So now I, I don't have the chart in, in front of me, but we're just trying to think in terms of the passage of time. 722, the northern kingdom fell. By 705, uh, Sennacherib was coming down into Judah and began raiding the towns there. The, the reasons for the raiding of the towns are, were twofold. Number one, it was uh, <clears throat> to flex their muscle. And, uh, and let everybody know who was boss. And the other reason was because, of course, the spoils of war. They could go in and conquer a town, then they could take the goods, 
from the town. And of course, it was very, very common. That's how some of these nations got so wealthy, is they raided the other nations and took their wealth. And so Sennacherib began doing this. And uh, God, um, God was not quite... Uh, uh, ready in his timetable for Judah to be conquered. And there was a king that rose up in Judah at that time. And uh, God intervened on behalf of Judah historically in response to their repentance and prevented the fall of Jerusalem to the Assyrians. Okay, The king at that time was a fellow by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king of Judah at that time, and Hezekiah um, led repentance. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings of Judah, and so he led the nation in repentance before God. And we read about in sec- that in 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20, and so you can, you, know, you can read that passage on your own, but I do want to to just point out to you kind of a remarkable event that took place in Hezekiah's life, and that's found in chapter 20. So in 2 Kings chapter 20, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow... Let's look at this. This is a miracle that God performed here. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps... Or go back ten steps. They're talking about on the, on the, at the temple, the steps of the temple. And as the sun would go across the sky, the shadow, as we know, would, would, go, uh, would, would, would increase forward. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure which direction the temple steps were at this point. So either down the steps or up the steps, whatever it was, it was going forward. Anyway, um, and Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. That's easy enough, right? And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps. 
by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. So as a, as a sign that God was going to heal Hezekiah, he actually had the shadow that the sun was casting on the steps go back ten steps to demonstrate his great power. And of course, there have been those who have debated whether, you know, those who think this is a book of mythology and, and find amusement in it like to take these incidents but scientifically, archaeologists and, and, and other scholars have demonstrated that, yes, there were glitches in history and time where things like this actually, scientifically, could be demonstrated to have happened. And that's the case in this, in this time as well, that the Lord performed this miracle to demonstrate to Hezekiah because Hezekiah had been, by and large, a righteous king. And so God... God spared his life, healed him after it had already been declared to him that he was going to die. And so, uh, and so we have that in the history of Judah. There were multiple reformations and periods of spiritual revival which occurred during these years in Judah. But they were always followed by spiritual collapse and backsliding. It happened on a regular basis. Hezekiah led a spiritual reformation. But there was something else that he did. He also formed an alliance with the king of Babylon for military uh, protection. We read about that in uh, just a couple of verses after what we read, beginning with verse, um, verse 12. At, the, at that time... Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. Now, strategically, that doesn't seem terribly wise. In my opinion, it's like, you know, hey, Babylonians, check this out. You know, you may as well say, come and get it. But I don't th- I think he was just trying to say, hey, I'm a good guy. You might want to, you know, I have a lot of wealth. You might want to be my buddy. Well, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Of course, we know what happens later. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? And so in order to make this military alliance with Babylon, because remember, the threat wasn't Babylon. The threat was Assyria. 
at this time. In order to make this military alliance with Babylon, Hezekiah was willing to put at risk the wealth of the kingdom and even his own people. I mean, his response to Isaiah's warning and prophecy, which did in fact come to pass, was, hey, it's worth it, isn't it, for peace? It's worth it if we don't suffer at the hands of Assyria. Brothers and sisters, I've heard this. I I teach, I've taught for many, many years children, junior high and and high school age kids. One of the common refrains I hear from young people, it's, it's not uncommon at all, is that compromise is okay if it brings peace. It, it, it's, it's better to live at peace than to stand firm on truth. Hear this all the time. That's, that's part of the disposition of many of us Americans. It's not just our kids. But they're learning that. Where do they learn that stuff? They learn it from, from adults. We're teaching them that. We 21st century Americans love our comforts and love our peace. And many of us do not want to upset the apple cart. And so therefore we make alliances with all kinds of ideas and concepts and and programs and, and notions that we know aren't quite orthodox. And yet for peace... Well, that was Hezekiah's attitude as well. The prophets were not at all happy about this. As a matter of fact, the the prophets consistently condemned alliances with foreign nations because God was not the one who was being trusted. The alliances with the pagan nations were saying that we don't trust God to make good on his promises by himself. We have to make alliances with pagan nations so that they will protect us. Maybe the rationale was this. Well, this is the way God will use. This is the way God will protect us through alliances with the pagans. That's part of the rationale that that I hear at various times from various people. But we know this, that alliances with pagan nations led to pagan worship. Because when we compromise in our stand for truth and purity, there's a vacuum in our soul that is filled by that which with, with which we compromise. And that's what happened to the nation here of Judah. As they would make these alliances with pagan kings, part of the deal was that the belief systems of those pagan nations would infiltrate within the country. And you know what? It is so easy when we compromise it is so easy to just go along with whatever attracts us from that outside ungodly source. I was talking at, we have, we're having our teacher orientation this week, 
at, uh, at school. And uh, one of the points that we were talking about, we were talking about a biblical worldview and how, how we need to train our young people to think out of a biblical worldview. And when you think about it, I mean, the, the scriptures are fairly narrow. It's not a mystery what the scriptures are saying about the way we view the world, but they're fairly, fairly narrow. There's a right way. It's called, it has a name actually, it's called Jesus. <laughs> he is the way and the truth and the life. He's the creator and sustainer and goal of all truth. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so, so that's fairly narrow. Matter of fact, the scriptures uses language like straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Or narrow is the gate and straight. Well, one of those two. I get my straight and narrow mixed up there. But there's a gate and a way and it's narrow and, and that's the way. The options, the alternatives to that way are infinitesimal. Any other way is compromise. Any other way. So there's no end to the way, to the ways that we can compromise on the truth. There's no end to it. Because anything that the, that the depraved mind of man can imagine is, is an option for compromise. What we, need is, what we need is for God to grant us the grace and the wisdom to know the truth and to stick to the truth and to not compromise in any of those kinds of ways. Well, that's what the, that's what the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the others, not because there might, be, there might not be some some political advantage to making alliances with powerful nations, but because they were pagan and God had called them to be separate and unique. And so they could not compromise from that. Well, very quickly then, because as usual, I'm, I'm not going to go long though. So, so we, I promise, because I, I heard about it from my wife, believe me. So we're going to be done on time. Manasseh succeeded his father, Hezekiah, as king of Judah. He became the most wicked king in Judah. He set up pagan images throughout the towns of Judah and within the temple of God itself. Ah, there's this, the fruit of compromise. Uh, Manasseh was brought to repentance. Interestingly enough, Manasseh, though, was brought to repentance in his old age. We can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 33. Ammon succeeded his father Manasseh as king of Judah and perpetuated his father's sins until he was assassinated. And when Ammon was assassinated, his son, who was eight years old, became king of Judah. His son uh, was, was the young man Josiah, and he ascended to the throne of Judah in 637 B.C. And he enacted the greatest period of reformation in the southern kingdom's history. We read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 34, and we also read about it in Second Kings chapter 22. Let me just real quickly read verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What a great, um, 
What a great commentary on the life of Josiah. You know, in the obituary page, oftentimes there are comments made about uh, individuals when they die in this, in this life. Wouldn't you love to have the obituary say about you that you did what was right in the sight of God and you did not turn to the left or to the right? That's a great, a great compliment that the scriptures give to Josiah. One of the interesting things about this time period when he ascended the throne was that uh, by now, Judah, of course, was in the depths of rebellion against God. And, and they were, began to, one of the things Josiah led them in was the rebuilding of the temple. So they began to rebuild the temple. And while they were rebuilding the temple, they came across a scroll, an interesting scroll. Actually, it was probably the book of Deuteronomy, which they had long forgotten about. And, and, so, and so here's the nation who had forgotten the law of God, and so certainly they weren't living according to the law of God. And they brought the scroll to Josiah, and they read it to him. And Josiah repented, and he reestablished in the nation purity of worship. His focal point was to reestablish the purity of worship according to the law of God. He gathered the people together, and he had the book read to them. He renewed the covenant, and he promised to follow God's laws. He removed all the idols from the temple. He celebrated the Passover for the first time in hundreds of years. They celebrated the Passover, and he drove out all the mediums and the spiritists, all the, the, the soothsayers, or we would say the witches and the wiccans. Drove them out. Of the, of the temple. The loss of purity in morality is often preceded by a loss of purity in worship. We need to keep that in mind, that, that typically in the history of the church, churches don't, don't leave the faith typically because of an intellectual turn or persuasion, what they do is they begin to compromise obedience to the word of God, standing securely and fastly on the word of God and the word of God alone. Now they begin to bring in other concepts and notions, and I won't take the time to to talk about them because I don't have it, but there are all kinds of movements amongst Christendom of all kinds of very... Strange and, I would suggest, dangerous ideas and practices around San Diego and around our country. Of these novel, they're, they're really not novel ideas, but they think they're novel and they're clever. And here's a new way to worship and a new way to pray and a new way to study. Here's a new thought. We now have more understanding about the scriptures. And so let's, let's think of Jesus this way. Not only does that lead to intellectual despair and confusion, it leads to the spiritual undermining of the people of God. The churches begin to crumble, and it happens regularly, and it happened there. And so it was when they returned to the purity of the worship under Josiah that God continued to bless them. We must move quickly. We know that 
Um, the battle of Megiddo occurred in 608 B.C. We read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 35, where Pharaoh Necho, we talked about him last week, of Egypt, was on a campaign towards the Euphrates River. He was actually going against uh, uh, the Babylonians. He was fighting the Babylonians, but Josiah decided he wanted to get involved in this battle, and Josiah was killed. In, in this battle. And we, we talked a little bit about that this year. The prophet Jeremiah, we read about this in Second Chronicles 31. Jeremiah himself lamented the death of Josiah because I think Jeremiah understood what that meant. He was a godly king and now the godly king had died and he knew where, where the nation was going and he lamented the death of Josiah. Some skeptics have used this uh, situation with Josiah to argue that this should be discouraging to the people of God. You see, here they have Josiah, who was a godly king in, in many, many ways, who brought reform, and yet what happened to him? He got assassinated in this battle. And so they've, and so they've actually, I've read their writings, they actually say, see, you real, it's silly to be that committed to this any one religious concept because evolution takes its course and things happen. We can call it fate if we want to or whatever term we want to use for it, but there's no sovereign intervention and God will not bless. The problem that they forget about is what the, what the uh, uh, prophets warned against. And Josiah's great, his one great flaw was that he made an alliance with Egypt or excuse me, excuse me, he made an alliance with Babylon. He wanted to use the Babylonians to free him from the, the tyranny of Egypt. And he made an alliance. He wasn't trusting on God alone to protect him. And God will not have any other gods. There can be no rival to God in our lives. And there couldn't be for Josiah as well, who the word of him is he was a godly king. And so he died. It's time for us to quit. We, uh, we know what happened. Babylon came, conquered, conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Um, young men, the, the wealthy, the young men, the, the intelligent, the, the cream of the crop were taken over into Babylon as, uh, as eunuchs and slaves. Daniel was one of them. Ezekiel was taken into captivity as well. Um, we don't read much about the time of captivity, but, but the book of Daniel tells us some things that were going on. Uh, the book of Ruth, excuse me, excuse, not Ruth, Esther. The book of Esther took place during the captivity, and we find out some things about the nation uh, that was going on. But later on, we know that under, under the, uh, the um, Median king, Cyrus, the people of God through Ezra and, and uh, Nehemiah were allowed to come back to... So the people will come back. The people of God will come back to the nation to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. So God's plan, his, his prophecies from, from way past, even in, in Genesis chapter 3, will come to pass. But not before they go through this time of testing and captivity and, uh, and God uses... Wonderful history. If you ever get a chance to study some of the history... For instance, you want to find out how Babylon fell to Media and Persia. What a historical story. wish I had time to talk about it, but we don't. So thank you for your attention to me, and let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for our time. There's so much there. Um, we're covering such important events over 
long period of time so quickly. But just help us to get an appreciation for who you are and what you do and how you impact our lives. And may we be faithful to you in every way and not compromise for any reason whatsoever. And may you receive all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.